Today's scripture reading will be from Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4, verses 7 through 16. You can follow along as we read God's holy, inerrant, infallible word. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. In saying... He ascended, what does it mean but that he had also descended into the lower regions, the earth? He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens, that he might fill all things. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness, and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped. When each part is working properly, Make the body grow, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of God stands forever. Before I begin, I'd like to take a moment to welcome some newcomers. Um, Church feels extra fancy today because all of our newcomers have very designer names. Um, so, uh, if we could welcome, uh, Andre and Cheryl, if you could just raise your hands wherever you are, right over there, a round of applause. Watch out for their fashion line, it's coming in, uh, spring. And also, uh, a friend of Medina's visiting us from Germany, uh, Christoph, if you could raise your hand. Uh, look out for his collection in the fall. Uh, <clears throat> so today we are finishing out uh, the first half of Ephesians chapter 4. <clears throat> and the sermon today is a little tricky because we're kind of, um, <clears throat> we're sort of wrapping up a thought that we began uh, last week in Ephesians chapter 4 verses 1 through 6. So we're going to do our best to try and, and, and keep things centered here on, on kind of where we are right now in the text. But it's one of those texts that's really hard because there's a ton of nuance that needs to go into it. Unfortunately, we are pressed for time. So if you could do me a favor, <clears throat> as you're listening to today's sermon, instead of thinking about all the ways this might not apply to you or about all the ways that you might be an exception to something, I would encourage you and say that you would probably have a more fruitful time if you thought more about all the ways where it does apply to you, where it might apply to you, where it would convict you. Because otherwise, we're just going to run out of time talking about every single nuance that could possibly exist in this text, because there's a lot here, okay? So with that, by way of disclaimer, let's resituate ourselves into Ephesians 4, because a lot of you missed it, okay? <laughs> oh, that's okay. Um, okay, so in verses 1 through 6, uh, last week, we talked about how Paul offers a picture of what a Christian's life is supposed to look like 
and how a Christian is supposed to live. So at the beginning of Ephesians 4, Paul tells uh, uh, the believers in Ephesus, he says, live uh, in a way that is uh, worthy of the calling that you have received, right? So essentially he's saying that a Christian's life, it should serve as a picture, that for a Christian to live in a way that's worthy of their calling, he's saying that a Christian's life should serve as a picture, a reflection of the saving work that God has done and is doing in their life. A godly Christian life should reflect the truth that all those who are saved by God and confess Jesus as Lord have one faith and one baptism and one hope. They are adopted into one family by one Father, who is the one God who is in all things and through all things and over all things. And then in verses 2 to 3, the Apostle Paul offers us some guidelines for how a Christian is supposed to live in such a way that it reflects these truths. So he calls these Christians to live in humility and gentleness and patience and bearing with one another, to be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit with one another, okay? And all of this is last week. This is all recap still. Okay, And the thing that stands out in last week, and really the thing that stands out in the entire book of Ephesians, is this theme of unity, that godliness always comes with unity within the body of believers, within the Christian church. Paul tells us that our Christian living must reflect the unity that believers share with one another, that believers should be eager to maintain that unity with one another. And we talked about this briefly towards the end of last week, but let me say it again because I think it needs to be said. Uh, One, Paul is not calling us to be eager to maintain unity with just anybody, right? He's calling us to be eager to maintain unity within the body of believers, okay, within other Christians. He's not calling us to be eager to maintain unity with the world or or, or the things that are antithetical with God's commandments, but rather uh, to be... um, Proponents of a spirit of unity with other members of the church of God, okay? The second thing is that Paul is not calling us to uniformity, but unity, okay? We will live Christian lives that may look a little different from one another. We may act out our faith in ways that may look different from one another. And Paul is not asking all of us to share in the exact same convictions or the exact same thoughts or have the exact same desires or plans or goals, but rather he's calling us to celebrate and live a life that celebrates the unity Christians have, not the uniformity, okay? So that's last week. This week, we are looking at verses 7 to 16. And in verses 7 to 16, he expands the picture that he began in verses 1 through 6. This picture of what godliness looks like, Paul gives us an expanded version of what it is. He gives us an expanded picture of what godliness looks like, what the goal of godliness is, and he answers for us an important question. How do we grow in godliness that celebrates unity while embracing the reality of all the things that make us different? Okay? And I'll I'll give you a hint. The answer to that final question is in the title of the sermon. In fact, I can can give you the answer right now. If you take nothing else from our last three weeks together, please take away this, okay? That there is no way that you can be a godly Christian without the ministry of the church, and there is no way that the church can become the body of Christ as God designed without your God-given ministry. There is no way for you to be a godly Christian outside and without the ministry of the church And there is no way for the church to become the body of Christ 
without your God-given ministry. I should note here that when we, when we say church, I'm not necessarily talking about like our church, KPCW, Cornerstone, the greatest church on earth. Okay? I'm not necessarily, we may have the best church, but I'm not necessarily talking about this church, but we're talking about the church universal, okay? The, the church of believers all around the world, throughout space and throughout time. Okay, so as we're finishing this little series on godliness, today I want us to look at a myth about godliness and then the ministry of godliness and then the marks of godliness. So we'll look at three things about godliness, okay? First, we'll look at a myth about godliness, then we'll look at the ministry of godliness and then the marks of godliness, okay? There are a lot of different myths that you and I will believe and disbelieve and then believe again about godliness throughout our lives. Maybe the most common and most uh, famous of myths that we believe is that true Christian godliness is just good and right behavior. That in order to be a good and godly Christian, you have to do the right things and say the right things and think the right things, right? This is, of course, not true. This is not what we would call Christian godliness. This is what the Bible would call legalism, right? And the Bible had a lot to say about that. Jesus had a lot to say about that to the Pharisees. Right? But in our passage today, Paul confronts a different myth about godliness that we are often guilty of believing. And the way the myth goes is like this. It says, godliness in the church have nothing to do with me. You see, it's, it's the type of myth that says, I am responsible for my Christian walk. I have no responsibilities, no obligations, no divine commands, and no responsibilities towards the spiritual life and vitality of anyone other than me. And you see, the way this myth expresses itself can be different depending on uh, the person who's experiencing it because they might believe it to a different degree of intensity or their life experiences may shape them to express it in a different way. Right? It can sound like the kind of person who says, you know, I don't really, you know, believe in church. I don't really, you know, like, I just think what matters is my personal relationship with God. Like, I'm good. You know, I spend a lot of time at home, and, and I watch a lot of sermons, and, you know, I watch John Piper, and, you know, I have Wayne Grudem's systematic theology, and I spend a lot of time reading and praying, and, and you know, I'm good. I'm good without the church. And this is a pretty extreme example, but I know that many of you know people who are like this, or you yourself have been this person at some point, probably when you were in college, right? I think that tends to be when it happens to most people. But there are other ways that this myth expresses itself, not in the total rejection of the church, but rather in a lack of importance and centrality of the church in the life of the individual. You see, in this kind of situation, the myth expresses itself like this. It says, you know, church is good. You know what? It might even be important. But I don't know if it's necessary. Like, it's good to have friends in the church, friends who you share in life with, you share your burdens with, who you pray with, but I'm not sure it's necessary. Yeah, like, it's good to volunteer. It's good to serve in different ministries in the church. It's good to participate in congregational meetings. It's good to give your tithe. You should do it. I do do it. But is it necessary? I don't know. But when we look at our passage today, and if you've closed your Bibles, uh, let me invite you to look with me at verse 7 and 12. 
In verse seven, the apostle Paul says this. He says, but grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. And then in verse 12, he continues his thought and he says, to equip the saints for the work of ministry for building up the body of Christ. What Paul is telling us here in verse seven is that every believer is given grace in their life. Not because they've earned it, right? Obviously, because that's the literal definition of what grace is not, right? Grace is getting something that you didn't earn. Grace is getting something that you didn't deserve, but that it was freely given to you, right? Paul is saying that in every Christian believer, there is grace that is given by Jesus himself, that after Jesus came to earth and he died on the cross and he rose from the grave and ascended into heaven, that he is alive, in the throne room of heaven, and from there, he gives an abundance of grace to every single believer. Not on the basis of that believer's performance, not on the basis of that believer's faith, but Paul tells us according to the measure of his gift. So what that tells us is every believer is given an abundance of grace because what is the nature of the gift that Christ gives to you? It is abundant and overflowing in his nature. And if this sounds familiar, it should. It sounds a lot like 1 Corinthians. There's echoes of 1 Corinthians all over this. There's echoes of Colossians and Romans all over this. But where Ephesians 4 stands a little bit unique is that Paul gives us no real examples of what this grace looks like in the life of a believer. He just tells us that it exists. And he tells us that every maturing the body of Christ, this has massive implications on our lives as Christians. We could literally spend hours unpacking all the nuances of how this impacts our individual walks, but obviously we don't have hours, so let's just unpack it a little bit together, okay? If we say that there is no such thing as a Christian who does not receive an abundance of grace from Jesus, and Jesus gives that grace to every single believer for the purpose of building up the church, for building up the body of Christ, what that means is there is no such thing as a useless member in the body of Christ. That every single member is given an abundance of grace that is given for a specific purpose to build up the body of Christ. And so one of the very clear implications and consequences of that is that there is no excuse for not contributing to and growing the body of Christ. That if you're a believer, you have no reason and no excuse to not contribute and grow the body of Christ. The implication of that statement is that if you are not serving, helping, and contributing actively to the good and growth of the church of Christ, it means that there is something fundamentally wrong with your spiritual living and perspective because it cannot be the case that Christ has given you nothing that you can offer to the church. Paul tells us he's given us an abundance of grace to offer for the good of the church. It cannot be the case that you have nothing to offer. And if you think that you have nothing to offer or nowhere to serve, the implication of this text is that you're probably not looking hard enough. You're not looking hard enough at your life and the circumstances that are in it and the opportunities to serve that might be all around you. 
that you're not looking hard enough at your life and yourself so you can't see the abundance of grace that you've been given and that you have. You can't tell where God's grace begins and where your effort and disappointment ends. So I, I can't tell you exactly what grace God has given to you in your life. He blesses us all in different ways. But I do know that he's given you an abundance of it. I know that for some of us, we have an abundance of financial capability. Maybe you don't feel like you have an abundance of money, but the truth is you can spend money in general without thinking too hard about whether or not you'll be able to pay the bills. Some of you, you may have an abundance of time. You may wish you had more time, but the truth is you know deep down inside you're looking for ways to fill the hours in your day. Some of you have unique skills, unique gifts, unique traits. Some of you have big homes and are good cooks and great hosts. Some of you have good health and strong bodies that are free of disease and illness. And some of you, some of you have suffered. And the experience of that suffering has forged you into a person with a new, unique perspective of compassion and suffering for others in the church who may be suffering in similar or the same ways. I don't know all the different forms of grace that God has given to you, but I do know that he has given you an abundance of it. And maybe it's hard for you to see, but what God's word is challenging us to today is if we cannot see it, it's because we are not looking hard enough or we are blind to the truth of it. And then that leads us to the real question, what are you doing with the grace that you've been given? You see, our passage today doesn't just call us to identify the grace that we have in our lives, the grace that God has given to us in our lives. It challenges us to exercise and utilize that grace in a way that matures and grows the body of Christ. And it tells us that we have to. It tells us that if we don't, the church of God cannot function properly. Look with me to verse 16. Paul writes, From whom the whole body is joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Verse 16 says that the church of God, that the body of Christ, it cannot function properly unless you are functioning properly, unless you are contributing to its health, to its growth, to its maturity, to its vitality. There are no such things as useless or unnecessary members. So the question is, what are you doing with the grace that God has given in your life? And that leads us to the second question. What is this ministry of godliness that our word today is calling us to? And it's great because in this passage, the Apostle Paul offers to us a sort of roadmap of what this ministry can kind of look like. Look with me to verses 11 to 13. The apostle Paul writes, and he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. 
So what does this ministry of godliness look like? Paul gives us a roadmap. He says, first, God sends apostles, prophets, evangelists, shepherds, and teachers. Why? To equip the saints of God to do the ministry work of building and maturing the entire body of Christ. What this means, dear church, is that the job and duty and responsibility of building the church is not mine. It's yours. It is my job to give you the tools to do it. It is your job to go and do it. What this means, dear church, is that God sent me here to you, to this church, to equip you so that you could do this ministry work of growing the church. Listen, I understand that um, I may not be the pastor you want. I may not be the pastor you like. You may not like my sermons. You may not like my brand of humor. That's okay. I do. But for as long as you're a member of this church, and for as long as I am a pastor of it, I am your pastor. It is my sacred obligation to equip you. And it is yours to be equipped by me. For as long as you are a member of this church, our pastors are your pastors. Our teachers are your teachers. Our leaders and officers are your leaders and officers. And maybe we're not the group of pastors and teachers and leaders and officers of the church that you want, but we are the ones that God has sent which means that the glorious task of equipping you falls on us. So teachers, parents, leaders, officers, what are you equipping those that God has put under your care for? Are you equipping your children, your students, your members, for a life that is happy and comfortable? Are you equipping them for a life that will be academically successful and professionally enriching? Are you equipping them with the tools that they need so they can support you and build up your ministry and your reputation? I'll confess that that last one is the hardest one for me. Or are you equipping those that God has put under your care for the sacred and glorious work of building up the body of Christ here and all around the world? Because that's the next step. That the saints of God take the tools that they've been given, they apply those tools to the grace that God has given to them, and they build up the body of Christ whether that's here at KPCW or another church down the street or on the other side of the world. So let me ask you again, what grace has God given to you to do this ministry work of building this church? And to what end and to what purpose have you been using that grace? Let me offer to you a tool to help you answer that question. Later, when you have time, let me encourage you to fire up your computer 
to pull up your calendar and look through your credit card statements. And as you do, ask yourself, for what purpose did I use this grace? Because both money and time are the universal graces that God gives to us. And if the rising cost of gas and the rising cost of inflation and everything else has not reminded you of the reality that your financial situation is a product of grace outside of your control, go plan a wedding and then you will remember or you will learn for the first time, okay? We are wedding planning right now and I am finding out it is crazy stressful, okay? We started out with a budget and we're like, okay, we did some research, you know, we know what we're doing and we're like, okay, this is the ceiling, and then, like, a week into wedding planning, we were like, no, this is the floor. Like, what? This is the beginning of our expenses. What in the world? Why is everything so expensive? You know, do we really need photos? Right? Just asking ourselves the tough question. You see, both money and time are universal graces that God gives to every single believer. So let me ask you then, believer, how did you spend it this week? What did you spend it on this week? For what purpose, for what end, for what goal did you spend it on this week? And I said it last week, but let me say it again because it's relevant. Just because you spend your time or your money on a Christian doesn't mean you, built, you spent it to build the body of Christ. You can just as easily spend your money and time on Christians to build up your own sense of self-worth or self-assurance, or sense of safety, that everything will be okay. You can spend your money and time on Christians, or churches, or missionaries, or missions organizations for all kinds of reasons that have nothing to do with the building up of the body of Christ. We talked about it last week. We'll talk about it again. Remember, for Paul, praxis, what we do is always rooted in principle, why we do them. The word of God does not challenge us so much about what we are doing, but rather it challenges us to examine why we are doing those things. Who are the people this week that were blessed by God's grace in your life, and why was it those people? Did you use the grace that God has given to you this week on them because they were members of the body of Christ or because they were in your social circle or because you get along with them or because they were conveniently placed? And again, there's, there is nothing wrong with you investing and, and, and spending the lavish grace of God that he has put into your life on your friends and your family and the people who are in the same age groups as you and certainly your children and certainly your spouses. There's nothing wrong with that. But what I'm asking is, are they the only people that you're investing in? Does the fact that Christ dies for every believer at all factor into your decision about who you spend time with, how you spend time with them, and how you choose to use the grace that God has given in your life? Are any of the relationships that you've pursued and invested in this week, or the people that you've prayed for this week, are any of them motivated by a desire to see the body of Christ, the church of God, grow in greater goodness and greater maturity? Now, maybe you're hearing all this and you say, okay, I hear you. How do, what do I do? Let me offer to you a couple practical suggestions 
for how you can begin a more, uh, a godlier ministry for the body of Christ. This week, pick one person, and every day, pray for that person. But pick a person who annoys you, who bothers you, someone you have a problem with, somebody you disagree with. And pray for that person every single day. For every person you complain about, pray for that person too. Alternatively, you can increase your ties to the church. You can do it by a percentage. You can do it by a dollar. Just increase it. Or go grab a meal with someone you don't know or someone you've been avoiding. Unless, like, you know, sisters, it's like that creepy guy. Okay? Then you don't have to do that. Or volunteer for the snack and fellowship table and go all out. Team up with your friends and go all out blessing this body of Christ with snacks and food and fellowship. And if you're ever in doubt and you've done all of that and you want to do more, there is one cardinal rule in every church that children's ministries always need more volunteers. Go talk to the nursery people. Go talk to the toddler people. Go talk to the children's ministry people. Or go learn an instrument and join worship team. We'd love a cello. But we want to make sure that all this stuff that we're doing, right? We want to make sure that all this stuff that we're doing is growing us in the ways that we need to be grown. That it's taking us in the direction that we need to, do, we need to be taken. We want to make sure we're investing these graces in a way that our godliness is growing and the health and maturity of Christ and his body is also growing. So how do we know what this godliness looks like? How do we know when we're investing the grace that God has given to us for the building up of his body as opposed to investing the grace that God has given to us in friends and relationships that just happen to be Christian? Well, we took a little bit of a look at this last week in Ephesians 4.1, and here in verses 7 to 16, Paul expands on that image, right? He gives us an image for us to shoot for. And he does this. In verses 7 to 16, Paul builds on this image by describing a Christian's growth in godliness as a growing in Christ-likeness. So how, how do you know that all this doing that you're doing is pushing you in the right direction? Well, it makes you look more like Jesus. Well, what, what does Jesus look like? Well, he's Middle Eastern. He has a beard. I'm just kidding. Paul offers us a concrete trait of what mature Christ-likeness looks like. It's not an exhaustive list, but it gives us a very specific example. And if you look at verses 13 to 15, you'll see that what Paul does is he draws a sharp contrast between maturity and immaturity. Right? He says, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that, here's a contrast, we may no longer be children 
tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who was the head, into Christ. Paul draws a contrast between maturity and immaturity. Maturity, at least the Christ-like kind that Paul is talking about here in Ephesians, it's characterized by unity and stability. It is contrasted with immaturity, which is characterized by reckless independence and instability. Right? Whenever Paul is talking about maturity, he talks about the various members of the body of Christ being united into a single body. But when he talks about immaturity, he describes it not as a single unit of a body, but rather he says they are like children. In the Greek, he takes on the plural form. They are no longer united as one. They're all on their own, scattered and individual. And so they're helpless against their circumstances, against every wind of doctrine. They are carried off. And this, this is something that I think we can be really guilty of in this description of immaturity. Sometimes the winds of doctrine that can pull us astray surround us from every side. Sometimes the winds of doctrine that carry us away from Christ-like maturity and his church can be found from within his church. When I first started seminary, I thought I knew everything. Like, I, no joke, would, like, talk to pastors who've been, like, ministering for, like, 10, 15 years, right? Some of whom were, like, my pastors growing up, and they were, like, a huge influence and such a blessing on my life. But then after I went to seminary, I was like, what? You don't remember your Greek? Like, you don't remember your biblical Hebrew? Like, you don't remember how to parse this verb in this weird participial tense? What do you mean you, you don't have all of Bobbing's reformed dogmatics? Are you truly reformed? And all of that learning of theology ultimately led me to this insane thought where I genuinely believed I could run this church better than this guy because I know my Greek, and this guy doesn't. And, you know, it, it all kind of culminated for me somewhere in my second year when I was, I was talking with a good friend of mine. And, you know, we were talking, and he said, you know, I don't, I don't know when it happened, but at some point I stopped caring about whether or not uh, people were Christian, and instead I just cared about whether or not they were truly reformed. I cared more about whether their theology looked exactly like mine rather than whether or not they had the same Savior as I did. So how about you? Have you been carried away by a wind of doctrine of our time, dividing yourself from the body of Christ because they're not mature enough? They're not dedicated enough? They're not passionate enough? Or maybe it's a different wind of doctrine. Does whether or not people agree with you on the concept of systematic racism or critical race theory cause you to be unable to fellowship with and pray for or minister to fellow believers? If people vote against your pro-choice or pro-life candidate, are you still able to break bread, still able to minister, still able to love, and still able to listen to them as a fellow believer. Because here's the thing, right? We, we live in this society that is constantly throwing at us 
all the issues and ideas and doctrines that this society says should divide us. We are constantly surrounded by messages that say, look, no, no, this, this issue right here is the most important issue. And anybody who doesn't agree with you on that, there's something fundamentally wrong about them. There is no issue more pressing than this issue. There is no danger more dangerous than this issue. There is nothing more important than this idea, this issue, this concept. It takes precedence over everything. There is nothing more dangerous to your faith, nothing more dangerous to your church, nothing more dangerous to your family, nothing more dangerous to you or to our dignity as human beings in our society than this issue. Are you being carried about by the winds of doctrine that surround us today? Okay, let me, let me add a little nuance. I can't add all the nuance. Okay, nuance number one, Obviously, you know, we're not talking about issues of, of blatant sin. Okay? One of the things that the Apostle Paul says is that Christians have unity, right, in their knowledge of the Son of God, right? So in the fundamentals of what makes a Christian a Christian, there's agreement. And I'm also not saying that you cannot disagree with a fellow Christian or that you cannot have a personal position or conviction or that you cannot very strongly disagree with another Christian, especially if that Christian is straying off the path of righteousness and truth. We said it last week. I'll say it again. Again, as Christians, you're called to be a beacon of truth and light in a society that is often filled with shadow and lies. But remember, and don't lose sight of what Paul says in verse 15. Speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who was the head into Christ. Are you speaking the truth in love? Because for most of us, I think we're more concerned about being right than we are concerned about being loving. I think the hard part is for a lot of us, we're more concerned about being right than we are concerned about being truthful. I think this comes up all the time in an argument whenever somebody brings up a statistic. Why? Because pretty much every single time someone brings up a statistic, one of two things happen in general, right? Either A, they're wrong and they're misquoting the statistic. They come up with some ridiculous number. They're like, did you know every second 80 people die, right? And they come up with some number. And then later, if you Google it, you're like, wait, that's not the correct number. Or B, the statistic is being misrepresented. Yes, the number is what the number is, but it's not actually accurate to the situation. But, you know, it doesn't matter for them. It suits their agenda. It fits the narrative they want to push, the truth they want to argue. Because here's the other thing. In the small minority of cases where the statistic is accurate, and it's not being misrepresented, it's still weird that you know it. Why do you know that statistic in the back of your pocket? Unless you had it there loaded and ready to go to beat another person into submission towards your argument. Are there exceptions to this? I'm sure there are. Are you the exception? Only you and the Spirit know. 
But here's another question to ask yourself. If you can magically wave a wand and have a person agree with whatever truth that you're saying, you know, you're in a disagreement with a person about whatever issue, and you're talking, and you're talking, and you're talking, and you're talking, and then you could just wave a wand, fast forward to the end where they say, you know what, you're right, I agree with you. I agree with you on X issue, whatever that issue might be. Fill it in with your issue of choice. What happens at the end of that conversation? Do they look more like Jesus as a result of that conversation with you? Do they in any way resemble the maturity and the faithfulness of Christ at the end of that conversation, even if they agree with you? Or do they just look more like you and what you think and what you believe? Are you having these conversations? Are you expressing these truths because you want people to become more like Jesus? Or because you want them to agree with the issues that you think are important? But Paul doesn't just talk about winds of doctrine. He also talks about the waves that we experience, the human cunning that we suffer from, the craftiness and deceitful schemes that often trip us up. Listen, life is filled with all kinds of circumstances and events. We will experience any number of hardship and sorrow and heartbreak in our lives. We will suffer the pain of divorce and the way it can tangentially affect us as the children of it. We will suffer death in our families or in our friends. Our health will fail us. People will disappoint us. Our bodies, our minds, everything we work for will eventually fail us. Paul is not asking us to become immune to the changing circumstances of life, to be immune to the sufferings that it brings, to be immune to the sorrow and hardship that comes with living in a broken world. But the question the word of God is asking is, do these things pull you away from the body of Christ? Or do they lead you to commit more deeply to it? Do they pull you away and lead you to say things like, well, you know what, nobody really understands. There's no one I really want to share with. I don't see the need. You see, this, this Christ-like maturity that we're called to grow in and commit to, it doesn't mean we're all going to go through the same things, endure the same hardships, have the same experiences, have all the same convictions, and express those convictions in all the same ways. Paul tells us that grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift, which means that within this one unified body of Christ, there is a diversity of gifts and members within it and their experiences and their wisdoms and their giftings and the things that God has equipped them for are unique and diverse and different and God designed it that way. And he designed it so that until you bring to the table all of the graces that God has given to you, the body of Christ cannot grow the way God wants it to grow. 
that each part must contribute. Not the parts we like, not the parts we choose, not the parts we agree with, but to each member. It's how the body of Christ grows in maturity. So if your spiritual life has felt stagnant and dead, maybe it's because you're disconnected from the body. Maybe there are people in this church that would be challenging you and shaping you and sanctifying you in ways that you need, that God is leading you to, but you're avoiding it for whatever reason. Maybe you need to spend more time listening to and getting mentored by friends who are way on the right wing of the political aisle compared to you. Or maybe you need to spend more time hearing and being discipled by friends who are way to the left of where you are. Maybe you need to be committing to relationships with people who you have meaningful differences with. But you know that you have unity with them because you both know the same thing. That none of us can do this on our own. The pull of all the things that divide us and all the things that separate us is greater than any amount of commitment or willpower that we could dedicate to being united. You cannot do this alone. But thankfully, God has not left us alone. He has given us the tools we need to be united to one another and to build up this body and to grow in godliness. One of those tools is his spirit. He sends his spirit to us to renew our minds, to renew our hearts, to give us new lives. And this is something that we'll look at, I mean, I guess not next week, but next time. Uh, it's the second half of Ephesians 4. But another tool that he gives to us is the church. It's diversity of members and their diversity of experiences in the diversity of graces that God has abundantly blessed them with. He has given us the life of the church. And every week we come here, and every week we gather, and every week we are reminded that we are not the same. That we have experienced different things in different ways. And we are gifted in different ways, with different abilities. But every week we are reminded that despite these differences, we have a true and better home and a true and better father. And there is a true and better land that we are walking towards little by little on this long pilgrimage home. And we know that we cannot get there on our own because we will get lost. We will tire. And when that happens, there are people in the body of Christ that will pull us back up and give us the strength we need 
to keep on going, to run the race, and to finish it until we finally become the people that God is forging us to be, the temple in which he dwells, the body of Christ in which the whole world marvels. We go forward every week, we gather here, and we do this sacred thing called worship to be reminded that one day, and it is not yet today, but one day, there will come a day when the body of Christ will finally be revealed and all of its perfect glory and all of its splendor and all the world will marvel and say, what a beautiful and amazing thing that you have done. I cannot do this. I need your prayers. Won't you commit to praying for one another this week? Won't you commit to building the body of Christ this week? Won't you pray with me now? Gracious God, we are so thankful that you invite us in, Lord, not on the account of our performance, not on the basis of our faith, nor do you give us grace on the basis of, of how smart we are or how talented we are or how capable we are. But you give us grace according to the measure of Christ's gift. And so, Lord, open our eyes to see the different ways that we can use this grace. Open our eyes to see the different grace and the abundance of it that you have placed in our lives and fill in us the conviction and the courage that we need to apply that grace for the good and health of your church and of your body and of believers all around the world. So forgive us, Lord. We have often tried to build up our own kingdoms our own ministries, and our own bodies. Forgive us, Lord. We have often tried to build up our own agendas. We have tried to build people up in our own image. But God, recommit us once again to this glorious work that you are doing in the body, your church. I pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.